much longer. I know I got to be right. Pandora's box is a box of chocolates Would I know To stay away oh, I said If Pandora's box is a box of chocolates Would I eat them anyway Cause every time I have half a mind to leave you Babe, that means I have half a mind to stay It's Pandora's Lunchbox on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good evening. My name is Mike, and this Pandora's Lunchbox here is a show about food and culture every Thursday evening at 6.30. And apples are in the air. They're flying through the air. It's beautiful, really. Don't get hit by one. But the fact is, last year was pretty dismal for apples in Michigan, you might remember. A whopping 3 million bushels in the entire state were produced. 3 million in the entire state. That's not a lot of apples, but this year it's 10 times that much by some predictions. They're expecting as many as 30 million bushels of apples produced in Michigan. And this came out from the Associated Press a few weeks ago. The Michigan Farm Bureau appealed across the eastern U.S. for help finding workers to harvest the state's bumper crop of apples because they need more people to get all those apples. The Michigan Farm Bureau has sent out help-wanted postcards to more than 300 registered farm labor contractors, mostly in Florida and Georgia. And horticulture specialist Ken Nye said growers have about six more weeks, well, that's from the beginning of this month, to get their apples off the trees and shipped to processors, fresh market retailers, or storage. The shortage results largely from last year's bad weather. There was the weirdly warm weather in the middle of March, and then there was the hard freeze, which was just not very nice. It ruined much of Michigan's orchard fruit crop, and seasonal workers took off and got jobs elsewhere, and few of them have returned this year. So Michigan needs apple pickers. In the meantime, well, thinking about apples, thinking about heirloom apples specifically, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But I can just about taste it. Can you taste it? I can taste it. It must be your eyes of apple green. Goodbye, but I've never felt more alive. I can taste it. 
That's Jake Bug, B-U-G-G, and that's Taste It. Oh, those eyes of apple green. I'm glad your eyes are tuned into Pandora's Lunchbox and things. Heirloom apples, though. What are these heirloom apples? Well, Zingerman's is all excited about them on their website. They say, one caveat that might be important if you're giving this as a gift, heirloom breed apples aren't always the most handsome. They're charming and they taste great, but they may be a bit small, a bit brown. They're bred for flavor, not for looks. They don't look like the shiny, waxy, genetic marvels at the supermarket. Oh, those waxy, genetic marvels. (laughs) I don't know what to say. But what exactly are heirloom apples? Well, aside from Zingerman's, uh, the produce station on State Street in in Ann Arbor is into heirlooms, and they stock about 20 different kinds right now. I actually didn't get a number on it, but there's a whole bunch of them. They've got descriptions and histories and such next to each one, little histories of each group of apples there that you can read. I was recently at the produce station. I talked to Aaron Rosset and the assistant general manager, Lance Kugler, about it. I learned about some heirloom apples through sounds and tastes and stuff. I kind of put them on the spot with a question about crossbreeding apples. But other than that, there, there, I, uh, I was nice other than that. There was some music playing outside as we stood by all those apples, and it was almost like we were at a really hip hangout, you know? A place called something like uh, Club Heirloom. Yeah, Club Heirloom. Club Heirloom. So I'll try that one out. Sure. That's the brown leaf russet apple. So it's mm. russeted on the outside, delicious on the inside. Mm. So you've just showed me the Brownlee russet apple. Mm-hmm. Now, when I, it has almost like a pear flavor to it. Would you say so? Yeah, it definitely it says say that it has a pear texture to it. Um, its origins is England, Victorian era, so 1848. So it's kind of like a pear apple kind of a thing. Most yeah. definitely. The texture is definitely a little bit more consistent with that of a pear, and it's got a russet on the outside, which most people think of russet as like a like an Idaho potato, so it's got almost like a scarring uh, brown on the outside. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's an definitely. apple pear with a potato uh, personality, <laughs> something yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's all about the texture. We get the sound of a slicing here. Okay. I don't know if that's going to... Yep, well, here, put this in your mouth. Okay, let me put that in my mouth. So this one right here is uh, my buddy Stephen's favorite apple right now, and that's the King David apple. And its origin is uh, Durham, Arkansas, USA, 1893. And it's a cross between a Jonathan and an Arkansas black. Yeah, so you can tell by the appearance, it looks a lot like a you know what most people know as a Jonathan apple. It's pretty dark red. Uh, a little bit smaller though. So a lot of the heirloom varieties people will notice are a lot smaller. Um, the genetics of them are not messed around with to you know produce larger apples or anything like that. Um, we do have some larger varieties as well, which you know um, you can be can be produced by just pruning back the trees so that there aren't as many fruit on one branch. Um, yeah, so this one, the one that he, we just tried, is a cross between a Jonathan apple, so it has that appearance, but it's a little bit more um, flavorful by that Arkansas black, I think he said it was. So, so uh, what is the Arkansas black by itself? 
Um, you know, we don't have any of the Arkansas Black here, but it's an older variety. So a lot of times when people think of heirloom varieties, um, it's because they're used from seeds that have been used for you know decades, you know even you know hundreds of years. So uh, it's what people think of as like what a real apple should taste like. It hasn't been genetically modified or anything like that. Um, so. Uh, a lot of the apples that we have now, you know, today have been, you know, sort of hybridized. So heirloom apples can still be hybridized, like this is a cross between two different apples, but it hasn't been genetically modified or, you know, um, changed in any way through, you know, research or <laughs> chemically or whatever, anything like that. So No, no evil... Uh what am I saying? No evil scientist no in the laboratory. Sci- yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Doing test tube studies or anything like that, no. So these are all old, very old. Uh, to be an heirloom, anything, not only just an apple, but a tomato or anything like that, has to be, you know, original seeds that can actually, uh, you can actually get the seeds from the fruit and create another <laughs> tree or another plant of some sort, so... So how do you get a hybrid? Do you just put them real close to each other and uh, see if they get to know each other well? (laughs) Uh, You know, I don't know the the specifics of it. I know you have to use sort of the pollen and cross-pollinate from different trees. You know, I don't know if you have to have a male tree and a female (laughs) tree or anything like that, but uh, you have to cross-pollinate rather than, like, you know, uh, doing it in a lab kind of thing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So uh, got another thing going here? So this one is the Hanson's Red Flesh. Hanson's Red Flesh. That's the name of it? Mm-hmm. Hmm. And also the appearance when you actually open it up. So you can see that it has a red flesh texture. The outside is like a shiny red. Here you go, sir. A little bit smaller, more of like a crab apple size on this yeah. one. A little bit more sour from what I remember as well. So It looks like they've uh, maybe soaked it in a red dye, but it's actually a very nice natural red flavor that actually is the flesh of the apple, hence the name. The the, uh, origins is Brookings, South Dakota, and it's 1928. The parent is... It's a very Polish-looking apple. Uh, Oh, wait, let me see. I'm going to read this information here. During the early 1900s, Danish-born Dr. Niels Hansen went to Russia and brought back to America a famous crab apple, which included Okay. He brought back famous crab apples, which include the Dogol crab and... I do not speak Polish. Kayana, maybe. (laughs) Yes, perhaps. But uh, this is a very uh, nice tart apple. It's great for making, like, jams and jellies. Uh, Not so much for just eating. It's so small and it is so tart that it's hard to really get a good meal out of it. But, you know, it's good for breaking it down, putting it into jams. And I believe that it has a fair amount of uh, natural pectin in it because it is a smaller-sized crab apple. Mm. Which, what crab apples were traditionally used for is for pectin and stuff like that to set up jellies and things like that. Also good for sort of staining different things. Like, if you're making a cider, it'll make it a nice red color, so... No, you said it's a crab apple? Yep, it, it's a well it's very close to a crab apple in size. I don't know the exact definition to a crab apple, uh-huh. but this one for surely looks like a large crab apple to me. And and edible as well. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Last call for heirloom apple teenies, just like your great grandfather used to mix club heirlooms, heirloom I mean, apple teenies. The best teenies. part about this whole Last thing is call. why it's so fun is, you know, we we get these from a farm that actually has like 15,000 different heirloom varieties. But, you know, they may only have, like, one tree of each variety kind of thing. So when we go there, it just sort of depends on the season. You know, we pull in, and they have, like, 30 or 40 different varieties available. But then the next time we go back, the next week, we're getting another 30 and 40 varieties that are completely different than the ones that we've already got. So throughout the year, you know, we end up having 
over a hundred different varieties of heirloom apples, but uh, it just sort of depends on what's available each week when we go to get them. So, yeah, it's fun. It is somewhere around like the Bay City area in Michigan. So about an hour to two hour drive to go get them. Okay. Yeah, I and mean, we actually go, the owner goes in his pickup truck and goes and picks up the apples, drives around the orchard and comes back with, like I said, as much as you can fit, usually 30 to 40 different varieties each week. So, yeah. They'll be available as long as the season lasts, you know. Um, these are one of the ones that, like I said, they, they sort of come and go. So they'll, we'll probably have them for another month or two. Uh, and then we'll have them back hopefully next year as long as the apple season's good. <laughs> ah, nice visit to Club Heirloom there. you got to try those heirloom apple teenies. I made that up. But actually, in fact, that was a nice chat I had with folks at the produce station talking about heirloom apples. They stock about 20-plus different kinds of heirlooms. Talked to Aaron Rossette and the assistant general manager, Lance Kugler, there about heirloom apples. And Wikipedia puts it pretty straightforwardly comparing heirlooms to other kinds of apples. It says, In modern agriculture in the industrialized world, most fruit crops are now grown in large monocultural plots. In order to maximize consistency, very few varieties of each type of crop are actually grown. Those varieties are often selected for their productivity, their ability to withstand mechanical picking, which must be rough on them, and cross-country shipping, and their tolerance to drought, frost, or pesticides. So I guess that means more food can get to more places, and that's one good thing, but in the process, lots of varieties of fruits and vegetables got left behind over the years, including some really in- interesting flavors, and took some individuals some a lot of time and energy to keep them alive. And now those heirloom plants have been nurtured, selected, and handed down from one family member to another, and they've made a comeback. And they can cost more usually, but they can really be interesting and flavorful and different, and they carry on some old traditions, too, so... Heirloom apples. And uh, one definition of heirlooms, there's actually some some strife over this, apparently, says Wikipedia. See, one school of thought says the plant must be over 100 years old. Others say 50 years. And the others prefer the date of 1945, which marks the end of World War II and roughly the beginning of widespread hybrid use by growers and seed companies. Many gardeners say 1951 is the latest year a plant can have originated and still be called an heirloom. Because in that year, it was the widespread introduction of the first hybrid varieties. And uh, some heirloom varieties are actually much older than all of that. Some are actually apparently prehistoric. Lots of heirloom varieties, thousands and thousands of kinds of apples. In fact, we have thousands in the studio right now. There's so many in Michigan right now. And in fact, sometimes apples are record companies, and they're owned by the Beatles, and they're created by the Beatles, and sometimes people in the Beatles write songs after they've left the Beatles about the people who hang out on the back steps of Apple record companies, and they call them Apple Scruffs, and sometimes those songs go something like this. Long, long time, and I you've been on my mind. 
Yes, indeed. George Harrison. Yeah, that's Apple Scruffs. It's a song, a love song to the folks who used to hang out in the back of Apple Records and hang out just for a glimpse of the Beatles. Maybe I can just see a couple of Beatles for a couple of seconds when they run and and they get a cigarette. Maybe I can see one and, and go, oh, my God. And, you know, his love song to the Apple Scruffs. Some folks wanted record deals, you know, all that kind of thing. Thank you, George Harrison. It's about 10 to 7. Pandora's Lunchbox is what this is. It's going to be Face the Music in 10 minutes-ish. Uh, with our wolf playing music that ends in the year three because we are in 2013 he's playing music for the next few weeks to end out the year with songs from 1903 1913 1923 1933 and 1943 vintage recordings and traditional jazz it all starts at seven this evening so about those heirloom apples and about the apples we look back look back hundreds of years to apples and see when they started and what would it be like to actually go back hundreds of years and then look back a further hundred, few hundred years and imagine? Well, the origin of controlled breeding of apples, according to Purdue University, was attributed to Thomas Andrew Knight, and he wrote a book called The Treatise on the Culture of the Apple and Pear and on the Manufacture of Cider and Perry, which was published in 1801. So he's looking back, and he's saying... From the description Parkinson, who wrote in 1629, has given of the apple cultivated in his time, it's evident that those now known by the same name are different and probably new varieties. And though many of those mentioned by Evelyn, who wrote between 30 and 40 years later, still remain, they appear to no longer deserve the attention of the planter. The Moyle and its successful rival the Red Streak, with the Musts and Golden Pippin, are in the last stage of the decay, and the Steyr and the Fox Whelp are hastening, hastening rapidly after them. How I miss the fox whelp, don't you? It's hard to, it's, I miss saying it too, fox whelp. Yes, yes. Now, here's the thing about apples versus vegetables too. I mean, heirloom apples, they're all hybrids, and apples cannot pollinate themselves. There must be a pollinator tree in a different variety nearby compared to heirloom vegetables that go with the whole open pollination thing. They're really like open man, and they can be pollinated by insects and birds and wind and other natural things. Fruit varieties like apples, they have to be propagated using using grafts and cuttings. So we heard the sound of a knife cutting apples earlier. Seem to be cuttings and grafts going on with apples. Well, I'm going to come back to England in just a second. We were looking at old English apples and things. But first of all, this is, I think, my favorite thing right now. This is a little bit of a diversion. Uh, you may have heard the sound of a knife cutting apples. Well, what about the bread and the knife? How about Litany by Billy Collins? See, Billy Collins was the former U.S. poet laureate who's written a lot of poems. A lot of them are about food, which I've recently discovered, and this is important. I've read poems on this show before, but then again, there are poems read by three-year-olds that are generally better readings than mine. So let's hear Litany by Billy Collins as read by a three-year-old. We'll let him introduce it. Litany by Billy Collins. You are the bread and the knife. The crystal goblet and the wine. You are the dew of the morning grass and the burning wheel of the sun. You are the right apron of the bank. Oh, uh oh. It's okay. The marsh birds sunny in flight. However, you are not the wind in the orchard that comes on the counter or the house of cards. And you are certainly not the pine scented air. There's just no way you are the pine-scented air. 
It is possible that you are the fish under the bridge, maybe even the pigeon on the jungle's head, but you're not even close to being the field of, of cornflowers corn at dusk. And a quick look in the mirror will show that you are neither the boots in the corner nor the boat asleep in this boathouse. It might to know. Speaking of the plentiful imagery of the world, that I am the sound of rain on the roof. I also happen to be the, sh the shooting star, the evening paper blowing down an alley, and the basket of chestnuts. Nuts on the kitchen table. I am also the moon in the trees, and the blind moments take up. But don't worry, I am not the bread and the knife. You are still the bread and the knife. You will always be the bread and the knife. Not to mention the crystal goblet and somehow the wine. <laughs> Very good. I'm quitting radio. That is just too wonderful. I can't top that. That was a three-year-old, and you can actually watch it on YouTube, uh, reading a poem called Litany by Billy Collins, and reading this from memory while playing with a toy, I mean, that totally tops me. I'm quitting, going to quit pretty soon. But uh, back to England now, back to England, I found a story in the Associated Press, and it had the following slug. They call it a slug now. It's the very brief description that they give it. Britain Stilton Jilted. So that, that's good. It says here in the Associated Press, they make fine cheese in the English village of Stilton. Just don't call it Stilton. British authorities say a local pub cannot market its blue-veined cheese as Stilton because that name is protected by the Europe, by European Union legislation. EU rules say the name can only apply to cheese made in the counties of Leicestershire, Derbyshire, and Nottinghamshire. Stilton falls outside of that area, but locals believe it's where the cheese originated. The Bell Inn has been forced to sell its cheese as Bell Blue rather than Stilton. A local cheese company asked the government to amend the rules, but the food ministry says that can, it, could, it could only consider an application from the pub. Pub landlord Liam McGivern vowed to fight on, saying it's ridiculous that we can't make Stilton in Stilton. No, it's just ridiculous. It's just not fair. So, but what about Stilton? Uh, the first known reference to Stilton cheese was in William Stukeley's Itinerarium Curiosum, dated October 1722. Daniel Defoe, in his 1724 work, A Tour Through the Whole Island of Great Britain, notes, We passed Stilton, a town famous for cheese, which is called their English Parmesan. Now, Wikipedia says blue Stilton is often eaten with celery or pears, but most importantly... A 2005 survey carried out by the British Cheese Board reported that Stilton cheese seemed to cause unusual dreams when eaten before sleep, with 75% of men and 85% of women experiencing odd and vivid dreams after eating a 20-gram serving of the cheese half an hour prior to sleeping. True. Fortunately for us, Nigel White, the secretary of the British Cheese Board, spoke to NPR's Melissa Block that year, and he said... One of the volunteers said that she dreamed of a vegetarian crocodile who was upset because he couldn't eat children. And another one dreamed that they had soldiers fighting with each other with kittens instead of guns. 
Yeah, so that's what happens when you eat Stilton cheese. It's it's the next uh, hallucinogenic, I think, and it, it goes great on crackers. So there you go. Not to mention they tried Red Leicester and Lancashire with the Red Leicester. They said it seemed to be very nostalgic dreams that people were having. Lancashire, they'd seem to dream about work. Stay away from the Lancashire. Go straight for the Stilton. Dream about vegetarian crocodiles that don't want to eat children because it's not good to eat children. Well, this has been Pandora's Lunchbox. I've been Mike for all of that. And coming up, face the music. Music from years ending in three. Well, from Detroit, here now comes the Dirt Bombs with their new bubblegum album called Ooey Gooey Chewy Kablooey. And there are several songs about food here, and that's very important. So we're going to end with one that has nothing to do with cheese. This is called Hey Cookie. Hey Cookie, thanks for listening. This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Don't stop listening. something, Mike Perini. I'm, uh, I'm going to be thinking about that uh, news flash about Stilton cheese for quite some time now. Stilton cheese, psychoactive. I guess I'm not surprised. It's 7 o'clock. 
p.m. This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor. 88.3 is the measurement in megahertz. We're the voice of the underground resistance of the intellectual force field or something like that. It's a student-run experimental radio at U of M with lots of support from the Ann Arbor community. This is the uh, the Face the Music show. It's a weekly feature program for vintage recordings and traditional jazz. And all of the remaining Thursday nights in the year 2013 devoted to music composed, published, and especially recorded in years uh, 1903, 1913, 23, 33, and 43. Pretty much sticking with the first half of the 20th century. This uh, first recording made in December of 1943, James P. Johnson all by himself at the piano. It was uh, written by Spencer Williams. It goes out to anybody who's got any taproots in Arkansas. This is the Arkansas Blues. Let's go. (laughs) 